Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. So we're starting this new series on Hosea. And before I start going into all of the, uh, the, the context of this new book, which I know that we like to do at the beginning of a series, I would just like to tell you a story. There was once a very righteous, kind, and prosperous man who was looking for a wife with whom to generously share all his love, his life, and his prosperity. A very beautiful woman caught his eye. She was full of life and and passion, quick to laugh, charming with everybody, flirtatious even. And he fell in love with her, and he wooed her, and he won her, and asked her to marry him. And she agreed. And for a while, he was deeply happy. He was the sole focus of his wife's desire, and she bore him a son. However, his joy at his son's birth was tainted by the changing behavior of his wife. He began to see that her eye was always in the mirror, thinking only of herself and her own desires and self-promotion. And he noticed that her charms and devotion were no longer solely directed at him. She would laugh and joke and flirt with other men, winning their hearts, accepting their many gifts and promises in return for her attention. It seemed she took his love and all he'd given her completely for granted. She was not satisfied with him alone and looked to gain acceptance and security and significance from other relationships. And this saddened the man's heart as she became colder towards him and warmer and warmer towards others. Then she fell pregnant for a second time and he had serious suspicions that this child was not his daughter. This little girl was not loved as well as she should have been. And as soon as she was weaned, the wife fell pregnant for a third time. Now this time the man knew for sure that this child was not his child, for his wife's unfaithful heart had left her love for him completely cold. He knew that he would be fully justified in divorcing her, casting her out to fend for herself. Her unfaithfulness was so obvious for the whole world to see. She had so shamefully, so clearly and deliberately broken her marriage covenant with him. But you know, this was a truly righteous man who was as faithful to his covenant as she was unfaithful. He saw her behavior and of course it angered him, but it also absolutely broke his heart. For despite her shameful prostitution, he could also not help loving her. He saw that the life she was leading would ultimately end with her enslavement, her rejection, her desolation. So he worked out a plan to win her back, to draw her back to him, redeem her heart, to redeem their relationship. For he was, at his 
very core, a man of deep, deep love and abundant mercy. And he knew that his mercy was even greater than her unfaithfulness. Now, for those of you who know the book of Hosea, you'll know that the story I have told you is a tale with two roots. On the one hand, it is simply the story of Hosea himself and his unfaithful wife, Goma. But of course, Hosea was a prophet, a prophet who obediently lived out the call on his life to demonstrate the very heart of God through the choices and example he made. So on the other hand, it's the story of God and his people, Israel. And you know, as we read this story today in the light of the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, our saviour, we could even say that this prophetic story is also the story of our own personal relationship with God. So let's take a look at each of these three interpretations of the story, which can be found in the first chapter of Hosea. Okay, if you want to turn to it, feel free. We're right at the beginning of Hosea. It's in the Minor Prophets, in the second half of the Old Testament. So the book of Hosea starts by telling us exactly when Hosea was alive. It says this right at the beginning. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. So this tells us that Hosea was writing over a time period of about 40 years in the 8th century BC. The nation of Israel has been divided for some time into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. We can see it here on this diagram. So you can see where we get the splitting of the kingdoms there. And we're, we're a couple of hundred years into that, that section. Okay, And this is where Hosea is, is speaking. It was a turbulent time that we read about in two kings. And Jeroboam II is mentioned in 2 Kings 14 as a king who was doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Hosea is mainly speaking to this northern kingdom of Israel where he's based at the beginning of his prophecies. It's a kingdom that within a generation, you can see there's an end to it, within a generation will be defeated by the mighty Assyrian empire with its entire population either killed, fled or taken into exile. And Hosea is called to speak into this unfaithful kingdom about their covenanted relationship with God. So what is Hosea's story? Shall we have a read? Here we go. So when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her for like an adulterous wife. This land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Goma, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Goma conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said, to Hosea, call her Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. 
And we we're going to go to verse 8. After she had weaned Lo Ruhamah, Goma had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo Amai, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So Goma bore three children Jezreel, Lo Ruhamah, and Lo Amai. Only one, the scripture explicitly tells us, is born of Hosea. So we're going to first of all take a look at the uh, significance of these three names. So what's the significance of, of Jezreel? Well, Jezreel is the place where the house of Ahab was wiped out by the house of Jehu. The story is told in 2 Kings 9 to 10. And if you read the story, you see that Jehu, who was anointed king by one of Elisha's prophets, was apparently acting on the Lord's behalf when he slaughtered Jezebel and the entire house of Ahab. You might remember the story of Jezebel falling to the, out of a window and being eaten by the dogs. It's a pretty disgusting story. So why does Hosea prophesy that the massacre requires punishment? Well, it has been suggested that although Jehu apparently carries out the Lord's commands, his heart was really on his own glory and profit rather than the Lord's. In other words, he did do what the Lord asked, but in his heart, he was devoted only to himself. Like Gomer's faithless heart, Israel's faithless heart is exposed here by Hosea. The punishment for this unfaithfulness is that the Lord will put an end to the kingdom of Israel and break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. And we see this prophetic warning come to pass the kingdom of Israel is indeed lost to the Assyrian Empire. It happens in about 722 BC. And their military strength is broken. Next child, we have Lo Ruhamah. Now, you know, sometimes, you know, we hear of parents, if you've ever been in that situation, you hear of parents giving their child a name. And you're like, ooh, I think that might cause some bullying or um, some strange nicknames. Um, but can you imagine calling a child not loved? You know, that seems really, really harsh, doesn't it? Poor, poor daughter. But this poor daughter's name shows God's anger at Israel's unfaithfulness. Hosea claims that the Lord will no longer show love for Israel, that he cannot forgive them for turning to other gods in their worship and other nations in their allegiances. The king of Israel at this time, Jeroboam II, was committing the same sins as his namesake, Jeroboam I, who was the first king of the split northern kingdom. He set up idols of calves for the Israelites to worship so they wouldn't have to travel to Jerusalem anymore, which was now in the kingdom of Judah. So through this idolatry, the people had stopped worshipping the true God, and instead were worshipping a god of their own imagination. Finally, Goma gives birth to Lo Amai, and here's the biggest blow for Israel. Lo Amai, not my people, makes reference to the original covenant that the Lord had with the people of Israel, through Abraham, through Moses, where he promises in Exodus 6 that he will take the Israelites as his own people and he'll be their god. This is one of the places where this covenant is spoken of. It, it says in Exodus 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. 
And here it is in verse 7, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And so God promises redemption and freedom from slavery. So to say you're not my people demonstrates a loss, loss of covenant with the Lord, the loss of that promised special relationship, a cutting off from the life source of a living God. It's a bit like saying, not only do I not love you anymore, but actually, from now on, you are no longer my child. I disown you. I wash my hands off you. And we see through the names of Gomer's children the charges against the people of Israel. Their hearts have been focused on themselves. They've been unfaithful in their worship and their uh, alliances, and they've broken their covenant with the Lord. They deserve to be disciplined, deprived, and disowned. They have turned their back on the Lord and his commands, and they've turned to other powers for their salvation, rather than the one true God And now the nation is going to have to face the consequences of being out of relationship with he who is their true salvation. It's an awful situation. But then, all of a sudden, Hosea changes tact. He changes changes the, the, the direction he's going in. And in the next verse, he says this. He says, yet... The Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved ones. It's like in the midst of all that anger that God has, the voice of love and mercy bursts through almost unexpectedly as if the true essence of God cannot be held back by his anger at the Israelites' unfaithfulness. And we see a remembrance of the promise that the Lord made to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. There's a promise of redemption a return of right relationship with God, a coming back together of those divided kingdoms of Israel and Judah under one leader, a unification, a restoration, a final re-establishment of that special relationship between man and God. And we see in this moment the undeniable mercy, the undeniable mercy of God towards Israel, his unconditional love, After a time of trial, it's promised God will make all things right for Israel. So we've looked at Hosea and Gomer. We've looked at God and Israel. So how can we relate this story to our own walk and our own relationship with God? Well, you know, Israel's story, her relational story with the Lord, is also our own journey. In the New Testament, through the coming of Jesus, his life and death and resurrection, we're adopted into their family, or as Paul puts it in Romans eleven seventeen, he says, grafted into their story. He says that we, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in amongst the others and now share the nourishing root of the olive tree. In other words, 
their roots back to the covenant with the Lord become our roots. We become part of the story of the redemption of Israel. Okay, that's nice to have in our heads, but what does that actually look like? Well, we can relate our lives to the journey of the Israelites. We Each of us have fallen astray, and through the brokenness and sin of the world and the brokenness and sin of ourselves, we've ended up in relational exile, away from the original relationship with God that he intended us to have with him. Like the Israelites in Egypt, we've become enslaved to the principalities and powers of the enemy and of the world. And just as the Lord sent a saviour, Uh, in the form of Moses to the people of Israel when they were enslaved, he sends us a saviour in the form of our Lord, Jesus Christ, who rescues us and sets us free from the consequences of sin by taking those consequences on himself. Now, sin is anything that deviates from God's perfect plan for us living holistically healthy and holy lives. And the consequence of sin is actually death because God is a source of life. So moving away from him is moving towards death. Jesus took that consequence in our, in our place and died on the cross for our sin. But as we know, that was not the end. He conquered the grave and was resurrected in victory to rule eternally on his throne, leading, leaving the way open for us to come back to him, to a right relationship with the Lord. He goes before us, wins the battle, creates a way. Like the Israelites, we have the opportunity to live as the Lord intended us to live, to enter into the promised land of eternal relationship with him, living under his rule and his reign. But just like the Israelites, we can still be distracted and influenced by the gods and worldly powers that are all around us. The Israelites in our scriptures today They were distracted by Baal and Asherah, the the gods of the the pagans around them, and they set up idols in the shape of calves and Asherah poles, worshipping as the pagans worshipped, using their practices even when they were worshipping Yahweh, compromising on how the Lord had instructed them that they were to worship him. So in name, they were worshipping Yahweh, but in practice, they were worshipping Baal. And we too can be in danger of being distracted by the the gods of the world around us. The world and culture we live in, for example, it idolizes sex, it idolizes power, it idolizes uh, material and financial wealth, youth and beauty. It idolizes self-actualization above our God-ordained and God-given identity of children as of the living God. And I wonder... In what ways do we, like the Israelites, find ourselves distracted by these things, diluting our devotion to the Lord and following in his ways, allowing these idols to influence our thoughts and our behavior and choices? Like, where do we spend our time and our money and our resources um, and our attention? Is it to bring us glory and make us look good in front of people, or is it to bring glory to the Lord and his kingdom? I wonder where our own compromises are. You know, when I look at my own story of faith, and maybe you can relate to it, we all have our own stories. 
I find that I can trace a similar journey to the Israelites in my relationship with the Lord. Before I knew the Lord, before I um, accepted his invitation to be the savior of my life, I was caught in a type of slavery. I was a slave to fear. What did I fear? Well, you know, I'm being very honest with you. I used to fear, I, have, I used to have a fascination, but also a terror of, of ghosts and evil spirits. And I sensed spirits in rooms and around people, and that made me fearful. And the enemy, he exploited that with dreams and visions that I couldn't control and left me really, really afraid. But Jesus came along, and as I made him my Lord, he gave me his authority to overcome evil. And I was no longer a slave to fear, because when I told it to go, it had to go. When I told them to go, they had to go. But as I came into the freedom the Lord gave me, like the Israelites, that was not the end of my story. I faced giants that needed defeating. For me, it was giants like depression. And I also faced worldly distractions like hedonism and materialism. Just like the Israelites, I found that if I joined in with what others around me were doing, it increased my popularity and meant my life was easier. We all like an easy life, don't we? It was easier and more fun, for example, when I was out with my work colleagues to keep drinking alcohol at the same rate as they did rather than to say no and have to explain myself and feel like the party pooper. I have found at many uh, points in my walk with the Lord, I've become distracted, start to lose direction. So I've had to stop and take stock and recommit and reconsecrate my life, put it back into the Lord's hands, gradually getting rid of all these other influences in my life. I've got to allow Jesus to take the lead and allow him to walk me into the holiness that he has already won for me. And you know what? I found that the closer that I get to him, the closer I know him, the better I know his holiness, the more that he reveals that to me, the more that I understand the contrast of my own sinfulness and the more I appreciate the mercy, the great, great mercy that the Lord has demonstrated to me. You know, the story of Hosea, which we're going to hear a lot more about in the coming weeks, paints a stark and heart-rending picture of the destructive consequences of Israel's behavior in their relationship with the Lord. You know, and our lives can be like that. You know, we, the consequences of sin in our lives can be destructive. We can end up um, falling into addiction when we can end up in the hands of depression and loneliness and feeling disconnected and feeling isolated. These are all consequences of, 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 of sin in our lives, either from others or from ourselves. We see vividly how much our sin breaks God's heart, but just like the way Hosea continues to pursue his wife's heart, the Lord fought to make a way to heal our relationship. And because of Jesus, there's always a way back to the Lord. His mercy, the scriptures tell us, are new every morning. So if we find that our 
journey with Jesus is going off track and we're no longer walking in the way that he's made for us, we've become distracted by the influences of the world, we have an opportunity to turn back to him. We have an opportunity to turn back to him today, to repent, to get rid of the things that have allowed us to uh, that we've allowed to come into our relationship with with him and he'll meet us with mercy and forgiveness because Jesus is the way and he's the truth and he's the life and the only way to the father who is the the god and the father of mercy is through him shall we just pray shall we just pray Lord, we thank you that you are a God of justice. That for you, there are consequences of sin. But you are also, Lord, at your very core, a a God of mercy. And Lord, I thank you so much that you created a way back from our own sin, our own decisions to sin, our own decisions to turn away from you, created a way back through Jesus. You created a way, you created the way, the truth, the life in Jesus Christ. And Holy Spirit, I just really pray that you would show us, you would show us where we go off track, where we start taking a road that's going to lead to consequences that are not good for us, It will lead to consequences where we feel isolated from you, that will lead to a place where we feel, uh, where where, where we make ourselves vulnerable to the enemy and, and what the enemy wants to throw at us. Lord, would you draw us back to you? Would you draw us back to you and to your love and to your great mercy? Would you show us where we compromise, where we somehow miss the mark? And would you show us the depth of your compassionate heart and your great love for us. I just really ask that in your name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.